do not have a suit or a tie on tonight. So, huh? <laughs> I hope you would stay. But no, it is such a great blessing always to be able to have the opportunity to preach and to proclaim God's word to you. It is something that I thoroughly enjoy. And tonight, as we look at Psalm 42, it is important to, to note just a little bit of background. Psalm 42 and 43, originally in the Hebrew manuscripts, went together. Uh, if you notice, Psalm 42 has a title. Psalm 43 does not really have a title. You don't get to another title until 44. But tonight, for our purposes, we will focus just on 42. The Psalms can be broken down into three different sections. Uh, this is written like a song with a chorus or a refrain in between, breaking up the stanzas. And so 42 can be broken down into verses 1 through 4 with the refrain as verse 5, and then moving on 6 through 10 with the refrain at 11, and then 43 is the end, followed by yet again the same refrain that we see twice in verses 5 and 11 of chapter 42. There is some kind of haze about and fogginess about who wrote it. Some speculate that it could have been written by David, others do not. But what we do know is that the psalmist is going through a great deal of suffering. And he is away from his homeland in exile. We get a picture, we get a glimpse into the soul of this man. We get to see the spiritual war that is raging on inside of him. Martin Luther once said that he could never properly understand some of the Psalms until he had himself had endured suffering. It's amazing how, how God providentially leads people into your life. Uh, last, week, last weekend, a buddy and I from work, we had an opportunity to kind of do some advertising for our company at Oxmoor Mall. And we had the company polos, black slacks on. And this gentleman walked up to us <clears throat> Excuse me, and he said, you all are from Campus Crusade, because Campus is in, in the name of our, our company, and we both kind of looked at each, each other, looked at him. We have quilts on display behind us, so we were kind of curious how he made that connection. But from there, a gospel conversation began. This man began to pour out his life to us, and over the course of what would be over an hour long, he would reveal to us what was going on in his life. He would tell us about his son who started seminary but then dropped out and was now on alcohol and drugs and that it was affecting his family. His two grandchildren were in the situation and that grieved him. He also spoke of his daughter who at nine years old went through a terrible skin condition, was miraculously saved from it but was now in turmoil as well. Her life was spiraling out of control. And as he left us with tears kind of strolling down his face, it reminded me that if you feel 
peel back the layers of everybody's life, suffering is there in some form or fashion. And maybe that is you tonight. Maybe you are going through a situation or you know someone that is going through a situation where suffering is occurring. Maybe it's just individually. Maybe you struggle with doubt, anxiety, loneliness. I know for me, doubt and anxiety are two of the things that creep into my life. But my goal for us tonight is to see that in the midst of trials and sufferings, that there is hope. And that hope is trusting God will do what he says, even though we may not see it. So if you would, look with me in in Psalm 42 as we read. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude and keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help and countenance of my God. Right away we see that spiritually the psalmist here is actively and intentionally begging to be with God. His situation is so dire that in this moment, all he wants is just to be with God. Notice what he isn't doing. He isn't asking for relief from his situation that is currently raging on, but rather that God would be with him in the midst of his situation. And he uses kind of a powerful imagery here to start off with. He uses the imagery of a deer panting for the water brooks. And I would like to to focus on this word pant for just a moment. Think about our physical bodies. Sometimes it's easier to ignore the pains of hunger. For me, I love to eat, so sometimes that is not so easy to ignore. But it is a lot easier to ignore than ignoring dry mouth. 
when we long for a drink, when we long to have our thirst quenched, we eagerly try to get to it as fast as possible. The longer that it is ignored, the more impatient that we get. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of conditioning back in college when I, when I played baseball. And we had this, this program where they gave us a workout packet. This is what you had to do over the summer months. <clears throat> when you came back to campus, you had to pass a running test. <clears throat> I hate running. So my freshman year, I show up to campus. I didn't really know what to expect, uh, but the first day uh, after our team meeting, we met at the field. Uh, we met at the right field corner next to the foul pole, and that running test would soon follow. What we had to do was run to the left field pole and back in 50 seconds. If you made it back in under 50 seconds, then you got to do it again. You got a minute break. We had to do that eight times. My sophomore year, when we showed up to campus, it changed a little bit. It got worse, in my opinion. That, that year, we started at home plate. We had to run to the right field pole, across the field to the left field pole, back to home. We had three minutes to do it. If you completed it, you got a minute's break, and then you had to do it five more times. It was only after you passed this running test that you would be able to proceed in the program and the workouts that would follow. But think about what we felt by the time that, that conditioning test ended. Many guys were bent over at the knees, hardly had any breath left. And all that we wanted in that moment, we didn't care if we passed, we didn't care if we failed, we just wanted something to drink. And here this imagery, as just as the deer seeks to satisfy its body with cool watered streams, and maybe the midst of dry elements, a dry land, or worse, from being hunted, just a moment to stop from running from enemies, to quench its thirst. That is the desire of the psalmist in the midst of his situation. He just wants God. That is what he thirsts for. He had been separated from his people. He had been separated from his place of worship. And he even takes it a step further. He says he thirsts for God, but notice he also says the living God. He understands that it is God alone that is the giver, the sustainer of life. He is the giver of peace. That is his desire. But immediately, as we will see, although that is his desire, all he feels like he really gets is the saltiness of his own tears. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of anguish, I know for me I've had situations where uh, I'm think, I can think of one in, in college when when my baseball career ended due to injury, I didn't really know what was going on. Relationships around me were kind of falling apart. There was one night specifically where I remember just crashing into the floor on my in my dorm room, and I just began weeping. 
immediately in that moment, I just cried out. I was like, God, I cannot do this anymore. I cannot continue going down this road that I am going. My Bible was above my shoulder, and as I picked it up, I just opened it, just, just hoping that something, something would speak in that moment. And I opened to John 14, and verse 27 is what I read. God says, I am he. Do not let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be afraid. That is what the psalmist is longing for. He's longing for God to tell him, I am your peace. Do not be afraid. But as we will see, he just keeps going further and further into despair. Not only does it stem from the fact that he's exiled, but the people around him are inflicting him with verbal pain. They're mocking God. And we'll get into that in here in a few, in a few moments. But notice that the, the imagery changes later on in this psalm. If you look in verses 6 and 7, again, we get this language of, Oh my God, my soul is in despair. The first part of 6. And then notice the change in the description of the waters. At the first part of the psalm, we get a sense that calm streams is what he is longing for. But then in verse 7, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Now we get this picture that his situation is so dire, it's so anguishing, that it, he just feels like the flood is about to overtake him. And as we've seen in Daniel uh, on Sunday mornings, that in the ancient Near East, the imagery of, of water raging and all that was significant. So to the people reading this psalm, this would have spoke to them. This would have spoken to, the, to, to how dire his situation is. We also see the same language in Jonah chapter 2. After Jonah has had fled from Nineveh, going the opposite way, he is then swallowed by the big fish. And in chapter 2, verse 3, he writes these words. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. Here it is. All your breakers and billows passed over me. The same language, the same phrases. But notice that even though the psalmist's soul, he feels like it is on the precipice, God's sovereign love is with him, and these waters are under divine control. The language of your waterfalls, your breakers, your waves. Friends, let us be encouraged that when trials and sufferings come into our lives, that we would encourage ourselves to hope that though these sufferings and trials may threaten us, they will not ruin us. And that is what the psalmist But as, as we read this, this psalm and realize that, that 
there is a battle between doubt and fear and faith that doubt soon retakes control. And in verse 9, the psalmist reaches a point where he says, why have you forgotten me? God, why have you forgotten me? I just want you, but I don't feel like you're here. And if it wasn't bad enough to feel like God had forgotten him, he's reminded of that by the people around him. Already suffering, the people in verse 3, we see this, we see this twice, where the opposition says, where is your God? They realize that this man is not where he wants to be. They realize that he is seeking to be with God. And when they see that God doesn't really seem to be found near, they began to ridicule him. Matthew Henry once wrote, Nothing is more grievous to a gracious soul than that which is intended to shake its hope and confidence in God. Likewise, Satan loves nothing more than to discredit the God the believer finds so dear. And I got to see this kind of take place in in Canada. Uh, Back in 2011, I had the wonderful opportunity of of going with the International Mission Board and then again with the North American Mission Board on two four-month trips uh, to Canada to do some college ministry in a small town in the eastern townships in the province of Quebec. Uh, and then a lot of people, they asked me before I went, they're like, you know, why, why are you going to Canada? And at the moment, I, I, I told them, I was like, I, I don't know why I'm really going to Canada. And they're like, it's, it's so close to the United States. I, I don't know. I just know that that was one of the places that, that seemed interesting to me. I like working with college students, so I applied, I was accepted, and now I'm going. But within the first couple of days, I quickly realized why this was an opportunity as the missionary briefed us about the situation in Quebec he told us that 99.4% of the population was lost the French Canadians or the Quebecois people group are the most unreached in North America this is a spiritually dark dark place And throughout my time there, I quickly felt alone in some cases. It is a very uh, progressive area of the world. It is is a a place that is spiritually turned off to religion, to God, because of the way that the Catholic Church had treated them, the people, that is, back in the 40s and 50s, to eventually it led to the 60s, where what is called the Quiet Revolution where a mass exodus of people left the church so that 50 years later now church buildings are abandoned church buildings are being turned into secular businesses 
and the French Canadians love to use church words as they call them as their cuss words. The word tabernacle was twisted to become our version of GD. Satan loves nothing more than to discredit the God the believer finds so dear. It hurts to go around Quebec and to see this take place. I even had people who I had become friends with. When they found out what I believed, they then turned on me, didn't want to have anything to do with me. And that hurts. Those things hurt. They lead us to doubt. They lead us to lose our trust in God, or worse, even lose our hope. But the way to forget our miseries is to remember the God of our mercies. And that is what the psalmist does in verse 4. Immediately after the people say, where is your God? He says, these things that I remember, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude in keeping festival. He remembers that God himself is the reason that he went to the temple to, to worship. It is God that is his reason to sing. It is God that is his reason to give thanks. Likewise for us, the memories that we have with our fellow brothers and sisters of God, they can do amazing things, amazing wonders for the revitalization of the hope within our souls. In fact, an entire psalm is dedicated to this. Psalm 77 is, is nothing but a psalm that, that talks about finding comfort in the things that God has done. And even more explicitly in verse 11, the psalmist writes there, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. Don't take your memories for granted. Some of the best times that I've, I've had throughout my childhood and my young adult life has been with the people of God. It has been in deep conversation about what God's Word says, about what God has done in other people's lives, what God has done in my life over the years. And when I find myself doubting or being anxious in any way, Psalm 77 comes back. Remember what God has done for you. Even in exile, far from home, and in the face of opposition, the psalmist remembers his God. And therefore, because of that, it then leads his tone to change. Twice in this psalm, we see there is the refrain in verse 5, and then again in verse 11. He turns the tables. He flips the script on himself, so to speak. Up to this point, his self has kind of been doing the talking. But now he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? He begins to talk to himself. And really, this is, 
a crucial part of the Christian faith. Daily, our inner selves are relentless at speaking to us, and we must be ready with a remedy. We must preach truth to ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when writing about these two verses, I found this really fitting and, and really summed it up. He says about the first part of 5 and 11, take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul, he asked. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Here we begin to see his faith interacting with his fears and his doubts, which we see that kind of go back and forth throughout. And what does he tell himself? Well, he says, hope in God. And I want to focus on these three words for a moment. First, with hope. What is hope? Hope, when you, when you hear this four-letter word, your, your, inner, your inner self begins to perk up a little bit. Why? Because there's a possibility that something good is about to occur either in your situation or your circumstance or just something good in general is going to happen. It's a feeling that gets our hearts and our minds excited. He says to hope in God. And that is a powerful thing when it's placed in the right direction. Too many times I feel like we place our hopes in things or people and then ultimately or inevitably we end up disappointed. For me, I had placed my hope in baseball. I had placed my hope in a relationship that I had in college. I placed my hope in, in whatever else, but at the end of the day, when all of that was stripped away from me, what was left? God. Things other than God or people who are not God, when hope is placed in them, they don't come through with it for us. But God does. <clears throat> And that's what he tells himself. Hope in God. He tells himself to place his hope in the unchangeable and the unshakable God of this universe. It's hope in God that will lead him. And 
because that hope in God will lead him, it drives him to praise him, even though his situation is dire. Hope in God, he says, for I shall yet praise him. And also, notice along the way, the many different ways that this man describes God. This is fascinating to me. As I was studying and I was, as I was preparing for this and seeing this battle rage within him, one moment he's, he's cast down, but then, verse 2, he says, God is the living God, and he falls back into despair. <coughs> Excuse me. And then verse 8, he says, He is the God of my life. Verse 9, right before he says, Ask God, why have you forgotten me? He calls him God my rock. And then finally, he says in verse 11, The God who is his help, his countenance. And then again follows that by saying, He's my God. That's the God I will praise. The living God. The God of my life. God, my rock. And even though by the time we get to the end of this psalm, it doesn't look like his situation has changed, and it doesn't look like his situation is going to change anytime soon, but his mentality has changed by the end of this. And God ultimately is enough. God is enough. Whatever life is throwing at you in this moment, whatever you're going through, God is enough. So what can we learn from a psalm like this? Well, first, I think that it reminds us that Jesus endured the same suffering that the psalmist endured, but on a much deeper level. Matthew 26, we find that, that Jesus is in the garden. He had just had the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And now they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus knows what is getting ready to happen in the next few hours of his life. And in the Garden, he urges the disciples to pray. And he tells them specifically, My soul is grieved within me, even to the point of death. In another Gospel, we find that, that, that Jesus... It says that he was sweating drops of blood. What he was about to endure was grieving his soul so much that he was sweating drops of blood. And even on the cross, Jesus himself cries out to his Father, My God, why have you forsaken me? After Jesus is arrested... He endured mocking. 
mocking from the soldiers as they tortured him or beat him. He endured mocking from the Pharisees pretty much his entire adult life. But even in the courts, and when he gets to the cross, he endures mocking from the people watching. And the Pharisees don't miss an opportunity to yell out, if you are the son of God, why doesn't he save you? If he delights in you, let's see him rescue you right now. But secondly, this reminds us that suffering crushes and silences the enemy. Isaiah 53, we, we see that, that it is written that it was the will of the Lord to crush the stone. Praise God that Jesus or the Father in that moment didn't listen to the Pharisees because then punishment falls on us. It crushes and silences the enemy. And likewise, for us, you know, unbelievers have a hard time understanding why Christians would choose to love God or follow God in the midst of dire situations. It's puzzling to them, in fact. A lot of times they think that, that we just use God to get whatever we want, and, and that, that's kind of all. But have you ever met someone who has gone through horrible situation and they reveal to you that even in those situations they have found it to be to experience some of the greatest joys they have come to find God so close in those circumstances I think of the Konamans I think of Robert that family went through so much But when we think about the message that they proclaimed both with their lives and with their words, we see that through this psalm that it silences the enemy. Jesus' death crushed death. It crushed Satan. All he has left is, try, is to try to deceive us. He has no power. Thirdly, I think what we see here is that suffering prepares us for glory. It reminds us that this earth is not our home. The worst that God ever does to his children is to drive them toward heaven, to drive them towards himself. Suffering prepares us for glory. And with 
the word in the New Testament, there will be no mourning. There will be no sadness. The sweet communion with God that we desire here on earth, we get forever and ever. So despite the situation that our psalmist is in, if you keep moving forward into Psalm 43, eventually he gets to that place where his vindication will come and he knows the Lord's vindication will come. So friends, tonight, whatever the situation, circumstance, whether it's external or it rages on inside of you, know that there is hope. And that hope is in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it will stand. It will stand. Won't you pray with me? Father God, sometimes the weight of this life can feel almost unbearable. Sometimes it can grieve us immensely. But as we see in your word that it doesn't have to be so and that it always won't be so. Father God, I thank you for the example of the psalmist that in the midst of fear and doubt and inner turmoil that he points us to you. that he points us to place our hope in the one thing that won't let us down, which is you. So, Father, I pray that as we depart from this place tonight, that that truth would ring loud and clear and that we would remind ourselves of that each and every day and that we would proclaim that message to those that we come into contact. We pray this through your son's name. Amen. You are dismissed.